Welcome to Slate's I Have to Ask. I'm Isaac Chotner. My guest today is Amy Chozik, a writer at large for The New York Times and the author of the new book, Chasing Hillary, 10 Years, Two Presidential Campaigns, and One Intact Glass Ceiling. In it, she chronicled her years on the Clinton beat, all the way up through Clinton's devastating loss to Donald Trump in November of 2016. Along the way, she paints a portrait of an unhappy candidate surrounded by unhelpful and unfriendly aides, and unable or unwilling to ever truly be herself on the campaign trail. Chasing Hillary is also an examination of the choices made by the press, including the Times, in how it covered the Clinton campaign. The book itself has engendered a fair bit of controversy, with Chelsea Clinton calling certain facts into question, and with at least one of Chozik's own colleagues taking issue with some of her opinions. Amy Chozik joins me now from Slate Studios in New York. Thank you for coming on the program. Thanks so much for having me. So when did you first start reporting on Hillary Clinton? I was I had been a foreign correspondent in Japan for the Wall Street Journal when my editor there became Washington bureau chief. This was 2007. And he said, how'd you like to go to Iowa and cover Hillary Clinton? So I was 28, I think. Yeah, 28. Um, I went to Iowa. I was having as much a culture shock going there as I had when I moved to Tokyo. I thought, oh, my God, Americans are huge. I, uh, you know, my I didn't know what a caucus was, which I admitted to Hillary Clinton's aides a couple years later. And they said, that's okay. We didn't know what a caucus was either in 2008. So that's when I that's when I really started. I joined her campaign, uh, covering her campaign in 2007 and uh, and covered her throughout the primary and then switched over to Obama in the general. Do you think there's something weird about the way newspapers work that they send people to, say, cover the Iowa election without knowing what a caucus is? Or is that just kind of par for the course of how how reporting works? Actually, I think it's um, I don't think that's par for the course. I think that was an exception. And I think the idea and I think it was a good one because um, I, I went to Japan without knowing anything about Japan. My editor's ideas was that fresh, fresh eyes would find new angles and new perspectives, things that people who either Japanese reporters or reporters who lived there for decades didn't think was strange. I thought was a story and was interesting to readers. And I think it was the same thing getting to Iowa. I noticed things that I think when you cover politics and that's all you cover. For instance, I wrote a a page one feature about uh, campaign hookups. And this is something that, you know, if you've covered campaigns, of course, people hook up and that's just a normal thing. But uh, for me, it was an interesting thing to see Secret Service and reporters and all kinds of hookups. So um, so I don't know. I think it's I think you find stories with fresh perspective and there can be a danger in the opposite way when you start getting too cynical and things just don't seem like stories and things don't seem kind of exciting anymore. It's like, yep, this is my fourth caucus and, you know, I know everybody and everything, and I'm writing to impress my friends. Do you think then that you did some of your best reporting on politics in your in your first few years writing on politics? No, I think it was just different. Like I think I found, I think I was more creative. I think I had more creative ideas, and I and also I think the media landscape then, you know, allowed for that. Like this was before Murdoch bought the journal. It was really pre. It was pre Twitter. It was like we were encouraged to find, uh, you know, offbeat features and do enterprise things. So I don't know if it was, I don't think it was some of my best journalism. I was young. I didn't know. I, there was a lot I didn't. No, but I certainly think I had I had fresh eyes and saw some things that I t- didn't see or wouldn't have identified as stories, you know, four years later. You write in the book, you had a Times piece ready to go if Hillary had won the election. And you quote from it in the book. You write, no one in modern politics, male or female, has had to withstand more indignities, setbacks, and cynicism. She developed protective armor that made the real Hillary Clinton an enigma. But if she was guarded about her feelings and opinions, she believed and opinions, she believed it was in careful pursuit of a dream for generations of Americans, the election of the country's first woman president. 
Um, when I read that, I thought it was written to suggest a little bit that what made her enigmatic and what in turn led her to being, I think, what most people would agree is a flawed candidate was the fact that she had been so mistreated over many years. Do you think that was the case with her? Yeah, I think that there are all of the kind of scandals and mishigas that had surrounded the Clintons for decades, I think, added to to her building up a lot of protective scar tissue that in turn had made her into an enigma and made her even more reluctant to kind of share the authentic parts of herself. So that's uh, that's part of it. Um, But definitely this, you know, she identified the vast right wing conspiracy and these attacks that she had been fending off for decades uh, made her more guarded about her feelings. And, And I think, you know, as the nut graph of that would be story says in careful pursuit of this, you know, historic, historic accomplishment. Hillary was known for many years to have a close circle of advisors, often women. Many of the paramount characters in your book are who you call the guys. Um, Do you think that her circle sort of became increasingly male over the 10 years that you covered her? And do you think that that had any effect on, on the campaign she ran? No, I think the women, her like close coterie of girlfriends, what they called Hillary Land in the White House, was with her throughout the campaign. Um, The final day of the election, I saw uh, Cheryl Mills and Maggie Williams and Huma and these women who'd been with her for years. So they were always there. I think the the people who protected Hillary, I called it her her, uh, court of flattering men. I think the people who interfaced with us, with the reporters, uh, were largely male. And that was um, a lot of that that I write in the book is was before she became a candidate, um, when she was after the State Department and had, uh, you know, some protect, very protective aides um, controlling her coverage or trying to. You portray the guys in the book, I thought, as pretty rude and condescending, uh, telling you you have a target on your back and generally being somewhat obnoxious and misogynistic. Uh, but you also grant them anonymity. They're they're not named, even though the media has had sort of a parlor game the last few weeks of trying to figure out who they are. And I'm sort of wondering what the point of not giving them specific names was in the book, especially when some of their comments seem pretty gross. Yeah. I mean, the idea of calling them the guys wasn't really a journalistic one. It was more of a literary one. I was, you know, thinking about these characters and they all sort of look the same, white men, clean cut. Uh, They all perform the same job, which was to, um, you know, control Hillary's image and the campaign's press coverage. And so when I started to, you know, keep them all straight, I was thinking of not of the reader, uh, you know, in New York or Washington who knows who these people are, but of the, you know, my mom's book club in Texas. And do they need to have eight different characters who are all very similar and perform the same duties? Or can I create this? What I wanted to create was sort of this tragic comic Greek chorus of of this kind of multi-headed monster of the guys, um, which I thought would resonate more with readers than this person or that person that you have to keep straight. You know, I know you say in your, in your author's note that um, having to remember the names of dozens of political operatives who all essentially perform the same por- purpose is boring. But it also seems, you know, if there's a top aide to Hillary Clinton who makes what I would define as a misogynistic comment to you, it seems newsworthy to say what that is and who these people are. Yeah, and I think my um, my devi- my literary device is not protecting anonymity, and it wasn't about granting anonymity. It's pretty easy, as you said, to guess if you know these characters. So I think it's not – it wasn't done to protect sources. It was done – you know, to kind of create an image in people's minds and keep these characters straight. 
I want to ask just generally about mm-hmm. the Times coverage. Uh, you have a – of Hillary Clinton. You have a section early in the book about Carolyn Ryan who at the time was the politics editor of the Times for the election. Mm-hmm. And you thank her in your acknowledgments effusely. And you write that she had a more natural ability to get the best out of her reporters than any than any editor I have ever worked for. But I also want to read something else you write, which is you say she had a more innate sense of what people wanted to read than other editors. And quote, I'm just going to read this. Talking to her set every brainstorming session off on rollicking tangents that included gossip collected in the congressional dining room on the Washington softball field and while waiting for the Times vending machine to st- to give us some stale Twizzlers. Unsubstantiated tidbits, particularly involving Bill and Hillary, Elizabeth Warren, and anything related to New York politics, would cause Carolyn to leap across her desk with a no way and a we gotta get that in the paper. You add that she could weed through 2,000 words of crap, pulling out a priceless treasure of an anecdote buried in graph 15. I thought this was an interesting way of introducing the politics editor of the most important newspaper on earth as it covers one of the most important elections of our lifetime, because I thought it sort of fit with a lot of critiques of the Times coverage, especially about the Clintons, that it was too gossipy and not focused enough on policy. But I thought you meant it basically as a compliment. Uh, How do you respond to that? Oh, that's interesting. I mean, I more have meant it that uh, how enthusiastic Carolyn got about breaking news. Of course, the unsubstantiated tidbits would have to be reported out, <laughs> you know, effectively reported out and sourced in order to get them in the paper. So it's not that she wanted to put gossip in the paper. I just think she had a real she has a real excitement for breaking news. Um, and, uh, you know, we covered every one of Hillary Clinton's policies um, and, you know, all the characters, all the I'm sorry, all the candidates policies. But um, but I think, yeah, I, I think I was just there just trying to show that she had really an innate sense of what people want to read and and that often, you know, I, I I talk about tension and kind of how the good story always has to have tension. And I would say, to Carolyn's credit, the tension doesn't have to be, oh, Hillary's going to hate this story. Sometimes the tension is, um, you know, my my deep dive into her relationship with her father, who was a, who was a kind of difficult character or the tension was when I went to Alabama and did a story about uh, Hillary Clinton going uh, undercover to investigate school segregation when she was working for the Children's Defense Fund and she could have gotten caught going undercover in these uh, segregation academies. So I don't think the tension always had to be gossip, but there was something innate that kind of captured the reader that she was she was good at. When it comes to the issue of of the emails and later the FBI investigation that was opened over Mm -hmm. Hillary Clinton's handling of the matter, you say about the Times that there was an insatiable appetite for email-related stories. I can't explain it exactly except to compare it to a fever that spread through every newsroom and made us all salivate over the tiniest morsels. You say that you regret and resent this, but what role do you think the Times had in how big a story it became? And do you connect the way you describe kind of the fever of – the, you know, looking, salivating over the tiniest morsels for stuff about the emails to your description of Ryan and the type of political stories the Times wanted. I don't say that it spread through the Times. I say that it spread through every new. I, I don't say there was I, the insatiable appetite is is clearly across all media. It's not specific to the Times in the book. Um, so I think you okay. Tri- well, you, you say it that. spread through every newsroom, right, And right. made us all salivate over the tiniest morsels, right? That us, presumably the includes the Times. Us, yeah, the media, including the Times. I mean, I think a lot of the 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 furor over the emails came from cable cable news and what was feeding what was feeding cable. So I don't I don't want to make I want to make clear that that section wasn't just the about the Times. Um, um, you know, look, we we 
I think I, I understand her supporters complaining that about the veracity and volume of stories around the email server. And we could talk about why I think that it, why I think there was such a volume and veracity of it. But but I think it's hard to say that the leading candidate for the presidency, presidency of the United States being under FBI investigation is a non-story, which seems like what some of her supporters have argued. You know, that was I think you can you can debate the legitimacy of the FBI investigation, but it was definitely definitely a big story and i think there's a, there's an easy sense of comparing it to what well, the scandals on the other side on trump's side and say well compared to what trump has done you know it's nothing and that i think it's a dangerous proposition to say well because the other guy's so beyond the pale we're going to ignore this other big story um that said i do write in the book that i regret and even resent that it became the only story i mean we'd go to these press conferences when hillary did them because she rarely did um and uh you know the Reporters would just scream at her about emails and I would, you know, there would be people trying to get other questions in and it just got completely drowned out. I mean, my my best example of this is uh, I spent a year trying to talk this woman, Sarah Ehrman, who was this feminist um, firebrand Democrat who Hillary lived with after law school when she was working on the Watergate uh, committee and she was moving down to Arkansas to to marry Bill Clinton, and Sarah Ehrman offered to drive her down on the three-day road trip. She tried to talk her out of it. She said, you could, you're could, you throwing your life away. You're the most gifted woman I've ever met. You could do anything you want to do. So I had wanted to recreate this road trip as this, uh, you know, to show readers this kind of vulnerable, different side of Hillary. And it took me a year to convince Sarah Ehrman to speak on the record. I had to bring her babka and wine. And finally, I get the story together. Uh, it posts, and three hours later, Comey sends his letter to Congress. So the story never even made it into the paper. It was just impossible to get other sympathetic stories kind of to break through in this envi- in, in the environment we were in. You say in the book that Hillary and her campaign, it is about the email story, never had a strategy to change the conversation. Can you expand upon that? Yeah. I mean, I say, look, I don't want to blame the victim here. I do think that the, the coverage was voracious about her emails, but I also think that, uh, you know, the campaign was not great at changing the conversation. I counted, I think, 47 interview requests that were turned down. We we asked her for interviews about national security, about uh, her work on the Children's Defense Fund, about her economic policies every single time uh, was either, you know, ignored or turned down. And I, and I have to think that some of those interviews would have knocked emails off the front page and, and made news. So it was, it was a frustration. I, at the same time, I understand their instincts. They were thinking, thinking all anyone wants to talk about is emails and she's in the lead, so why risk it? Um, but I think some of those stories, if we had been able to get interviews, would have you know, made the front page and put policy on the front page. Right. I guess my question would be why, even if the campaign is not cooperating, and again, I think we agree that you and you you catalog very clearly in the book the way her campaign behaved, which is not uh, not great in most uh, in most ways. But even if they weren't you know, uh, agreeing to interviews, even if they weren't, mm-hmm. you know, giving access to certain things. It seems like the Times as an institution is still allowed to put other stories on the front page. Yeah, and we did. I mean, one of my first stories uh, right out of the gate was how Hillary Clinton was consulting 200 advisors to craft her economic policy. Um, you know, we did cover all of those all of her policies, all of the debates. I mean, coming from the Wall Street Journal, where I interviewed her, ex, you know, extensively during the financial crisis, um, I was very drawn to policy stories, and we did those. It was just very hard to get them to break through. Right. No, you're saying I, you're just, saying I, I you're think... saying we could have put that on the front page even if there was no interview. Yeah. 
I I I agree, but when you get a press release that the entire press corps gets um, on some policy that's being rolled out, you know, it's much harder to argue that this is like huge news that needs to be highlighted in an important way. I mean, I don't obviously make those decisions or I would put all of my stories on the front page. But uh, but I do think like, you know, you need news. You need something new. Um, yeah, but we, we right. covered all of it. <laughs> Right. No, I mean, look, a lot of a lot of the times coverage of the campaign was fantastic. I'm not I'm not trying to say that as a blanket it was it was it was terrible or something. Yeah. I, I guess it just feels like sometimes when you talk to people in media, people at place like the Times, which is an incredibly important institution, that and and I say this as someone in media myself for a slightly smaller institution, that, you know, we have some role in setting what the conversation is as well as yeah. sort of writing about what the conversation is. And yeah. so it feels like the Times is a active actor as well as a passive actor here. I would agree. But then you'll also like there was this and I I don't want to act like we're perfect. I'm very self-reflective in the book. And I was very self-reflective in the excerpt that ran in the in the Sunday review a week ago um, about some of the concerns I have looking back on my coverage. So I don't want to act like we're perfect. But I also there's a frustration that there's this narrative that you know all you covered was emails and you never covered policy and i'm like well you didn't read my tax my story about her tax plan or my infrastructure plan um and so i don't know what the answer is i mean i think you're right that the onus is on news organizations and i think the times has been really good about highlighting policy stories in new ways now with the daily and with um you know new digital tools that we're doing like i and i think like maybe that is the answer like how do you bla- how do you package these to make them interesting and make sure they break through i mean it's not necessarily putting it above the fold like there there can be a you know if michael barbaro wants to really dig into a policy story that's going to reach a lot of a lot of listeners so um yeah but yeah the onus is on us to get those stories to break through and i and you know we covered them but feel like we we could have done a better job, I'm sure. You write that the guys um, hated the kind of memorable details that uh, Carolyn and you gravitated to. Uh, And then you sort of tell an anecdote that you and Carolyn Ryan wanted in the paper about Natalie Portman's dog and Mm -hmm. the Clinton Foundation. Mm -hmm. I'm wondering, do you think the campaign was was right to hate those kind of stories? Or do you think that they were missing something about the way journalism works? No, I I understand why they disliked those stories, those details. I mean, as I write, the Natalie Portman's dog ended up in a in a like super PAC conservative super PAC fundraiser. You know, the memorable details are often the ones that stick. So I completely understand why they disliked those. Um, I think and one of the things I want to get across, I, I hope got across in the book is even though the guys like tortured me, I didn't I never said they weren't good at their jobs, you know, and they and they they knew they to their credit, they knew which details were going to resonate and rev up her, you know, the the machine that works against Hillary, often in conservative media. They knew which details would resonate, and that's why they fought back against them. So, no, I think they completely understood. You have a section about the paper's coverage of WikiLeaks, which you just alluded to, mm-hmm. which you title, How I Became an Unwitting Agent of Russian Intelligence. And you can talk a little bit about what your what your argument is, but mm. what do you think the Times did incorrectly, you and the Times, in its coverage of WikiLeaks, and what do you think it should have done differently? Um, I mean, I can only speak to how I felt after the election about myself, and I was on the F train on my way to the newsroom reading my colleagues in Washington wrote a really great Pulitzer-winning story about how the Russians had pulled off the perfect hack to interfere in our election and help 
elect Donald Trump. And and one line just stopped me in my tracks because it said turning all media organizations, including the Times, into de facto agents of Russian intelligence. And so, uh, you know, that made me really uncomfortable. I don't I'm not arguing that we shouldn't have covered the emails, but it definitely made me think that there should be, you know, a much larger journalistic debate about how to handle some of these foreign hacks that are designed to uh, disturb our our democracy, um, especially leading into the midterms when we know that that's probably going to happen again. Do you feel, I mean, I don't know if you've talked to people at the Times about it or other reporter friends. I mean, have you, do you feel like you have some idea for how the media could do it differently? Because it's a hard problem. I mean, if if I had an answer, I would say it. No, and I think there's been a perception that I said we shouldn't cover them. And like, no, some of this information, especially her Wall Street speeches, was, you know, pertinent to voters. And and we need to our job is to inform voters. So if we can verify that this stuff is accurate and contextualize it, that's important. I think maybe it's the quantity of coverage and the kind of deciding what is really of importance to voters and newsworthy versus what is not. And then the other thing I would say is to be as transparent as possible about disclosing the source. We didn't know as much as we know now about Russian interference, um, especially when the WikiLeaks emails first landed. Um, we knew the Russians had been behind the DNC hack during the convention, but we hadn't had definitive, you know, any kind of definitive report about Podesta's emails. So I think, uh, you know, I think you could disclose to readers the motivation behind the source as much as possible to be transparent. To ask you another question about about sort of campaigns and how we should think about them, alluding to something you said earlier, let's take this out of a partisan or recent history lens. But let's say you have two candidates and they're both flawed. And let's say one of them has many obvious flaws and um, there are hints that that person is corrupt in some ways. And mm-hmm. then let's say you have another candidate where it's sort of blindingly obvious that that person is 50 times as corrupt and you could do 50 times as many stories on that person's corruption. Mm -hmm. I I, I think this is a real problem for the media because, you know, we kind of assume that candidates, even if they're slightly corrupt, that they adhere to certain norms or parties will only choose candidates who adhere to certain, certain norms. And when you get into a situation where, you know, in the general election, the last six months of a campaign, essentially, that you have two candidates and they're both flawed and one of them is just so much more corrupt or so much more dishonest, you don't want to let the second candidate off the hook. But at the same time, covering them in relationship to their flaws or their honesty or their corruption really would feel like letting a second candidate off the hook because the discrepancy is so so glaring. And I'm sort of wondering if you think there's any way that the media can do anything about that. It, it seems like a real problem to me. That's interesting. I mean, I think you're... You're right in the sense that Trump, there were so many, there were so many storylines. There was like his taxes, his treatment of women, his bankruptcies, his treating the working man badly. Um, and so we covered all of those. But with Hillary, it was just emails, emails, emails. So that I think that resonated more. Even when the WikiLeaks happened, the average voter just heard emails, you know. So I think that resonated a lot more. I mean, I think you're right in that just because there's a scandal happening on the other side doesn't mean we have to, like, find this other thing and we have, we you know, we're being tough on this candidate, so let's find something to be tough on this one, too. But at the same time, I don't think, I don't think we can say this is a really legitimate story. If it, this is a, you know, legitimate news story, if it had been any other election year and Hillary was running against anyone else, um, you know, it would be big, but she's running against this guy who's so beyond the pale that we need to, like, downplay it. I think that's a journal, a dangerous journalistic proposition. I think you have to cover, you know, assess the newsworthiness of each story and not kind of how it fits into who she's running, who the candidate is running against. You describe Hillary's initial response when learning that she wasn't 
going to win as saying, quote, they were never going to let me be president. Mm-hmm. What do you make of that response? And given how much time you spent uh, on the campaign, what, do, what does that tell you about Hillary Clinton? Yeah, I mean, that response initially, I thought, made a lot of sense for Hillary. You know, she has been through these political storms her entire, uh, you know, her entire professional life ever since she's been on the national stage. And she talked about that vast right-wing conspiracy. And she's talked about, you know, deep-rooted misogyny and people, this kind of um, Hillary hate hate machine that has existed ever since she, you know, first came on to the, to the national stage. So I, initially I thought they were this were all of these forces that she and I would throw political reporters into it, which she who she called us, you know, big egos and no brains, um, kind of obsessed over salacious, salacious gossip and not and uninterested in policy. So I I think I knew what they were that she was referring to. And then, you know, as we've had more distance on the election, I've also seen they as these other outside forces, the um, the Russian involvement, the Facebook ads, um, you know, the fake news. Um, they became – I don't think that's what she was referring to then because we didn't know the extent of it. Um, I think it's just kind of Hillary knew that she was up against all these forces. I mean all of her aides have said the person who was least surprised was her. Do you believe that's true? Yeah, I do. I mean I think she was going to win. I think she thought she was going to win because in that final day I'd really never seen her so happy. But I also think – and there's something sort of endearing about Hillary that people don't really realize is she's really insecure um, even though she's so successful and so pulled together. Um, you know, she'd have like an amazing debate and as soon as she got backstage say, how'd I do? How'd I do? And so I do think she was probably the least the least surprised. Chelsea Clinton uh, has been arguing uh, over Twitter a little bit with your book, saying mm-hmm. a couple facts are wrong. Yeah. The book uh, was fact-checked, I know you've said. Um, do you know that if they reached out to Chelsea Clinton uh, in the course of the fact-check? I can say I have a lot of respect for Chelsea. I covered this family for a decade. I kept copious notes. I'm very confident in my reporting. I I did hire a fact-checker, as you know, like books. most books don't aren't fact-checked, so I hired an independent fact-checker to review all of my reporting. Um, while I've got you, I was going to actually. Do you mind if I? Do I mind if I if I expand on that a little? Sure. Part of the book, I you know, when I was growing up in Texas, I really saw myself in Chelsea. So I'm just going to read about. I, I I even saw myself in Chelsea. Then we were about the same age, from neighboring southern states, both avid readers and uncomfortable in our own skin, with smiles full of braces, curls we couldn't control, and frilly dresses with bubbly shoulder pads. So then I'm fast flash forward to like 2015, and I run into her. Again, and I say, I no longer saw myself in Chelsea. She had grown into her celebrity with flowing straight hair and a permanent strawberry glow. Chelsea told Elle magazine that in her early 20s, her curls had had just naturally subsided, an affront to frizzy-haired women everywhere. I also happened to know her New York hairdresser and a keratin job when I saw it. So I think it's hard on Twitter when uh, misinformation is being spread, but that is the you know I I do wanted to get the co- I did want to get the context into that uh, that disputed of the keratin is that yeah is that yeah what I wanted to? to get that 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 context in which is what which is what Chelsea objected to on 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 Twitter exactly no the reason I brought it up was yeah. just in the in the context of our earlier conversation about your author's note yeah. and changing changing some names mm-hmm. and identifying details and giving people pseudonyms and so I think with a lot of books. Now, now people, you know, want to understand exactly what's real, what's not. Uh, is this a memoir? Is it a reported book? And I realize memoirs can be true, but it right. does seem when I read the author's note, at least I was I wasn't exactly sure. You know, I, I knew I wasn't saying I 
was expecting you to make something up or that yeah. you made anything up. But yeah. uh, but uh, it it was it was a little unclear in sort of what medium we were working with. No, I understand that. And on, also, this is sort of a new medium. I mean, I'm like blending campaign reporting with my personal story and personal memoir. And like that's going to be very difficult for people to I, – I totally understand. I mean, on one hand, I didn't – you know, I wasn't going to write a memoir and every time I say something that I – have, you know, copious notes backing up and a fact checker backing up. I wasn't going to have a parenthetical saying so-and-so deny that this happened, like like I would in a long magazine story, for instance. Um, and so that's what I was sort of getting at to explain in the author's note that, you know, I have a story. This is, this, these are my imper- impersonation. I'm sorry. These are my impressions and memories, um, you know, backed up in hundreds of interviews, thousands of hours of audio, <laughs> reporter's notebooks I've stuffed under my bag, under my bed for 10 years. I hired a fact checker to confirm and scrutinize my version of events. Um, But it is not a magazine story or a newspaper story in which everyone mentioned can, you know, deny or comment on everything that we've that we've gone through. Amy Chozik is the author of Chasing Hillary, 10 years, two presidential campaigns and one intact glass ceiling. It is available everywhere. Amy, thank you so much for coming on. I have to ask. Thanks for having me. Yes. And that's our show for today. I Have to Ask is produced by Max Jacobs. Thanks to Alberto Hernandez at Fantasy Studios in Berkeley for the additional help. And thanks also to Shasha Leonard at Slate Studios in Brooklyn. If you have an idea for a guest or you just want to let me know your thoughts, email me at ask at slate.com. That's A-S-K at slate.com. Or you can follow me on Twitter at iChotner for more updates about the show. And thanks for listening.